everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Going Upcast, where for yet another week we check in with Jim and the gang and that's about it. Yeah, this week was uh was was pretty okay overall. Um the problem is, is I'm not consuming a lot of new media to to really discuss. You know, I have shit to watch. I've just been a little too uh preoccupied with some other stuff to actually witness it. Um but I, I will talk about I will talk about two things real quick. Number one, um I wanted to briefly mention this because I was cool. And I haven't witnessed it yet, so I can't say for certain whether or not it sticks the landing. But there's a new nature documentary on Netflix called Night on Earth, which is all about nocturnal animals. And it's all shot with, like, low-level light cameras. And visually, it looks really cool. I just haven't stuck the landing on it, so I don't know if it's worth it or not. But that might be a thing to, to check out. And number two, I've noticed that um, Disney Plus's consistent streaming quality is, in my opinion, better than Netflix's. Um, like there's never been a moment where I was watching something on Disney plus and I went, boy, that looks like shit. Like the quality went down. Um, but I do think that with Netflix quite a bit, like the, the, you know, the, just the stream quality is, is lesser. So just wanted to mention that as well. And perhaps I'm wrong, but maybe y'all have similar experiences. Who the hell knows? But yeah, this week we're just going to do some treasure Island chapters. Uh, we do quite a bit of them this week and we're making some progress through that book. We're about halfway through, I would guess. Uh, so probably in another three or four weeks, we will finish Treasure Island, at which point we will then move on to the next uh, public domain book. And I have absolutely no idea what that's going to be. So if you guys have any recommendations, feel free to shoot me a message at goingcast at gmail.com or use the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash goingupcast. But that's enough dillying and dallying. Let's take a listen to Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. This week, complete with booze. Enjoy. not game of thrones but i'm drinking the game of thrones whiskey mostly because i don't know when i'm gonna read game of thrones again and i really need a little glass of whiskey oh that's really good oban nine years aged i think mm, very smooth very smooth anyway chapter 15 man of the island man of the hour that's who we're dealing with from the side of the hill uh, which was here steep and stony, a spout of gravel was dislodged and fell rattling and bounding through the trees. My eyes turned instinctively in that direction. I saw a figure leap with great rapidity behind the trunk of a pine. What it was, whether bear, man, or monkey, I could in no wise tell. I could in no wise tell? Sure. It seemed dark and shaggy, more I knew not. But the terror of this new apparition brought me to a stand. Still. I was now, it seemed, cut off upon both sides. Behind me, the murderers. Before me, this lurking, nondescript. Immediately, I began to prefer the dangers that I knew to those I knew not. Silver himself appeared less terrible in contrast with this creature of the woods. And I turned on my heel and looked sharply behind me over my shoulder and began to retrace my steps in the direction of the boats. Instantly, the figure reappeared and made a wide circuit, beginning to head me off. I was tired at any rate, but I had been as fresh as when I rose. But had I been as fresh as when I rose, 
I could see it was in vain for me to contend in speed with such an adversary. From trunk to trunk, the creature flitted like a deer running manlike on two legs, but unlike any man that I had ever seen, stooping almost double as it ran. Yet it was a man, I could no longer be in any doubt of that. It's Naruto running just all over the fucking place. I began to recall what I had heard of cannibals. I was within an ace of calling for help, but the mere fact that he was a man, however wild, had somewhat reassured me, and my fear of silver began to revive my pro uh, proportion. Revive in proportion, there we go. I stood still, therefore, and cast about for some method of escape, and as I was think so thinking, the recollection of my pistol flashed into my mind. As soon as I remembered I was not defenseless, courage glowed again in my heart, and I set my face resolutely for this man of the island and walked briskly toward him. He was concealed by this time behind another tree trunk. He must have been watching me closely, for as soon as I began to move in his direction, he reappeared and took a step to meet me. Then he hesitated, drew back, came forward again, and at last, to my wonder and confusion, threw himself on his knees and held out his clasped hands in supplication. German. At that, I once more stopped. Who are you? I asked. Ben Gunn! He answered. Uh, okay, hold on. Ben Gunn. Ben Gunn. Ben Gunn. Benjamina Gunn? The, he was mutinied here. Um... Anyway, uh, right? I think? Sure, why not? Fuck it. What voice do I give for Ben Gunn that was voiced by Miss Piggy in the movie? Um, let's go with uh, Little Finger's voice. Oh yeah, Ben Gunn, he answered, and his voice sounded hoarse and awkward like a rusty log. I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am. I haven't spoken with a Christian these three years. That's nothing. What was that? That was terrible. Anyway, who cares? I could now see that he was a white man like myself and that his features were even. Pleasing. Oh. Ugh. His skin, wherever it was exposed, was burnt by the sun. Even his lips were black. His fair eyes looked quite startling in his so darker face. Of all the beggar men that I had seen or fancied, he was the chief of raggedness. He, his clothes, he was clothed with tatters of old ship's canvas and old sea cloth. This extraordinary patchwork was all held together by a system of the most various and incongruous fastenings, brass buttons, bits of sticks, loops of Gary Gas Terry Gaskin. Uh, about his waist, he wore an old brass buckled leather belt, which was the only thing solid in his old accoutrement. Accoutrement. Three years! Sure, that'll work. I cried. Oh. Three years! I cried. Were you shipwrecked? Nay, matey! He said, marooned! I heard the word. And I knew it stood for a horrible kind of punishment common enough among the buccaneers in which the offender is put ashore with a little powder and shot and left behind on some desolate and distant island. Marooned here three years agone, he continued, and lived on gold since then and berries and oysters. That sounds all right. Whatever a man is, says I, a man can do for himself. But mate, my heart is sore for a Christian diet. You ha mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you now, no. Well, many a long nights I dreamed of cheese. Toasted mostly. I walked up again and here I were. What the fuck is toasted cheese? Grilled cheese? Like, like a cheese sandwich that's been grilled and melted? What the fuck is toasted cheese? Can't put a slice of Kraft American in a toaster and have that work out. Nah, that's just gonna melt and burn. That's what that's gonna do. Would you like a slice of toasted cheese? The fuck are you talking about, toasted cheese? Oh, so good. If I can ever get aboard again, I said, you shall have the cheese by the stone. All this time he had been feeling the stuff of he had been feeling the stuff of my jacket, smoothing my hands, looking at my boots, and generally in the intervals of his speech, showing a childish pleasure in the presence of a fellow creature. But at my last words he perked up in a kind of startled slyness. If you ever get aboard again, you say, he repeated, 
Why now, who is to hinder you? Not you, I know, was my reply. And right you was, he cried. Now you, um, what do you call his, uh, now you, what do you call yourself, mate? Jim, I told him. Jim, Jim, he said, quite pleased, apparently. Well, now, Jim, I've lived that rough as you'd be ashamed to hear. For now, instance, you wouldn't think I had had a pious mother. Look at me. He, he asked. Why, no, not in particular, I answered. I forgot, but fuck it, it's fine. Ah, well, he said. But I had remarkable pious. I was a civil pious boy and could rattle off my... Cagism? All right. Once more onto the internet. Looking up a word that... Cage chism. Cade chism. Cade chism. A summary of the principles of Christian religious religion in the form of questions and answers used for the instruction of Christians. A series of fixed questions, answers, and or precepts used for instructions in other situations. Interesting. Alrighty. Not an aspect of Christianity I'm familiar with, but, you know, so's the boat. Um, and you couldn't tell one word from another. And here's what is to come, Jim, and begun with a chuck farthing on the blessed gravestones. That is what begun with, but it went further than that. And so my mother told me and predicted the whole she did, the pious woman. But it was Providence that put me here. I thought it all out here on this lonely island. And back on piety. You don't catch me tasting rum so much. Just a thimble full of luck, of course, the first chance I have. I'm bound I'll be good and I see, th and I see the way too. And Jim... Looking around him and lowering his voice to a whisper, I'm rich. Now I felt sure that poor fellow had gone crazy into solitude, and I suppose I must have shown the feeling on my face, for he repeated the statement hotly. Rich, rich, I says. I tell you what, I'll make a man out of you, Jim. Ah, oh, Jim, you'll bless your stars, you will. You were the first that found me. And at this there came a sudden low shadow over his face, and he tightened his grasp on my hand and raised a forefinger threatening before my eyes. Now, Jim, you tell me true. I'm just changing his voice. Who gives a fuck? That ain't friendship, he asked. At this I found happy inspiration. I began to believe that I found an ally and I answered it at once. It's not friendship and flint is dead. But I'll tell you true, as you ask me, there are some flint's hands aboard. Worst luck for the rest of us. Not a man with one leg, he gasped. Silver? I asked. Ah, Silver, he says. That were his name. He's the cook and the ringleader too. Still holding me by the wrist. And at that he gave it quite a ring. Oh, what a ring he gave my wrist. If you were sent by Long John, he said, I'm as good as pork and I know it. But where was you, do you suppose? I'd made my mind up in a moment and by way of answer told him the whole story of our voyage and the predicament in which we found ourselves. He had heard me with the keenest interest and when I had done, he patted me on the head. You're a good lad, Jim, he said. And you're all in a clove hitch, ain't you? Well, you just put your trust in Ben Gunn. Ben Gunn's the man to do it. Would you think it likely now that your squire would prove a liberal-minded one in case of help? Him being in a clove hitch, as you remark. They told him the squire was the most liberal of men. He voted for Clinton every time. Boo. <laughs> uh, I was booing the joke. I don't much care for politics. Um, Aye, but you see, returned Ben Gunn. I didn't mean to give me a gate to keep and a suit of livery clothes and such. That's not my mark, Jim. What I mean is, would he be likely to come down to the tune of, say, 1,000 pounds out of the money that's as good as a man's own already? I'm sure he would, uh, said I. As it was, all hands were to share. And, uh, and a passage home, he added with a look of great shrewdness. Why, I cried, the squire's a gentleman. Besides, if we got rid of the others, we should want you to help work the vessel home. Ah, he said, so you would. And he seemed very much relieved. Now I'll tell you what, he went on. So much I'll tell you, no more. Oh, God. 
I'm gonna really try to get back on the back on this fucking voice train here. <clears throat> Potter! There we go. I were in Flint's ship when he buried the treasure. He and six along, six strong seamen. That night, there was... <laughs> they was ashore nigh on a week, and us standing off and on on the old walrus. One fine day up went the signal, and here come Flint by himself in a little boat, and his head done up with a blue scarf. The sun was getting up, and mortal white he looked about the cutwater. But there he was, you mind, and all six dead, dead and buried. How he had done it, not a man aboard of us could make out. It was battle, murder, and sudden death leastways. Him against six. Billy Bones was the mate. Long John, he was the quartermaster. And they asked where the treasure was. Ah, he says, you can go ashore if you like and stay. He says, but as for the ship, she'll beat up, she'll beat up for more by thunder. That's what he said. When I was in another ship three years back, we sighted this island. Boys, I said, here's Flint's treasure. Let's land and find it. Captain was displeased at that, but my messmates were all of mine and landed. Twelve days they looked for us, and every day they had a worse word for me until one fine morning all hands went aboard. As for you, Benjamin Gunn, they said, here's a musket, they said, and a spade and a pickaxe. You stay here and find Flint's money for yourself, they says. Well, Jim, three years have I been here. Not a bite of Christian diet from that day to this. But now you look here, you look at me. Do I look like a man before the mast? No, you says you. No, I won't. No, I won't. Neither, I says. And with that, he winked and pinched me hard. God, I hope it was like above the belt, maybe in the shoulder face reach. I don't know. Just don't, don't pinch people. Hey, hey, you. No, no, no. Come on. Come on. Don't pinch people. Gross. Anyway. Just you mentioned them words, dear Squire Jim, he went on. Nor he won't neither, that's the words. Three years he were the man of this island, light and dark, fair and rain. And sometimes he would maybe think upon a prayer, says you. Sometimes he would maybe think of his old mother. So she uh, shall be as she's alive, you'll say. But the most part of Gunn's time, this is what you'll say, the most part of his time took up with another matter. And then you'll give him a nip like I do. And he pinched me again in the most confidential manner. God, stop it. Then, he continued, then you'll up and you'll say this. Gunn is a good man, you'll say. And he'll put a precious sight more confidence. A precious sight, mind that. In a gentleman born than the than in these gentlemen of fortune have been one himself. Well, well, I said, I don't understand one word that you've been saying. But that's neither here nor there. For how am I supposed to get on board? Ah, he said, that's the hitch for sir. Well, that's my boat that I made with my own two hands. I keep her under the white rock. The worst come to the worst, we might try that after dark. Hi! He broke out. What's that? For just then, although the sun had still an hour or two to run, all the echoes of the island awoke and bellowed like the thunder of a cannon. They've begun to fight! I cried. Follow me! And I ran, began to run towards the anchorage. My terror was all forgotten. While close to my side, the Ramoon man and his goat skins trotted easily and lightly. Left! Left! He said. Keep to your left hand, mate Jim. Under the trees with you. There's where I killed me first goat. They don't come down here now. They're all mastheaded on the mountains on fear old Benjamin Gunn. Ah, oh, there is the cemetery. Cemet um, Cetemid. Cetemary. Cetemary. Cemetery, he must have meant, is what it said. It's like purposefully misspelled, but I don't know how to pronounce it, so fuck it. You see the mounds? I come here and pray now and then when I thought maybe a Sunday would be about do. It weren't quite a chapel, but it seemed more solemn-like. Then, and then, says you, Ben Gunn was short-handed. No chaplain, no so much as a Bible and a flag, you says. So he kept talking as I ran, neither expecting nor receiving any answer. The cannon shot was followed after a considerable interval by a volley of small arms. Another pause, and then, not a quarter of a mile in front of me, I beheld the Union Jack fluttering in the air above a wood. 
Okay. Sure. Sure. Guess uh, guess that works out. That works out just fine. Looks like it's time to start the next part of this book, part four, The Log Cabin. Chapter 16, narrative continued by the doctor, how the ship was abandoned. What the fuck is this book? This is fucking, this is blowing my mind. There's so much to the story that I did not know existed. Well, Treasure Island is just like the first fucking half of the story. Anyway, or bits of it. I don't even know. Who cares? Did they even find the treasure? Let's find out. It was half past one, three bells in the sea phrase, that the two boats went ashore from the Hispaniola. The captain, the squire, and I were talking matters over in the cabin. Oh, it's the doctor. Uh, okay. Had there been a breath of wind, we should have fallen on the six mutineers who were left aboard with us, slipped our cable, and went away, and away to sea. But the wind was wanting and had to complete our helplessness. Down came Hunter with the news that Jim Hawkins had slipped into a boat and was gone ashore with the rest. Never occurred to us to doubt Jim Hawkins, but we were alarmed for his safety. With the men in the temper they were in, it seemed an even chance if we should see the lad again. We ran on deck. The pitch was bubbling in the seams. The nasty stench of the place turned me sick. If ever a man smelt fever and dysentery, it was in that abominable anchorage. The six scoundrels were sitting grumbling under the sail by the forecastle. Sure, we could see the gigs made fast and a man sitting in each hard by where the river runs in. One of them was whistling, Liber Bolero. Lily Bolero. Sure. I'm not familiar with that tune. I also can't whistle, so I wouldn't be able to do it if I could. Waiting was a strain. Was that a show? Wasn't that a weird zombie infection show? The Strain? With like Del Toro? Am I, am I crazy? Am I, I don't know. And it was decided that Hunter and I should go ashore with the jolly boat in question in the quest for information. The gigs that leaned to their right, but Hunter and I pulled straight in um, in the direction of the stockade upon the chart. The two who were left guarding their boats seemed in a bustle at our appearance. Lily Bolero stopped off, and I could see that the pair discussing what they ought to do. Had they gone and told Silver, all might have turned out differently, but they had their orders, I suppose, and decided to sit quietly where they were and hark back again to Lily Bolero. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. It's probably the two L's make the Y sound, so it'd be Lily Bayero. Although there's also two L's in Lily. Fuck it. There was a slight bend in the coast, and I steered so as to put it between us. Even before we landed, we had thus lost sight of the gigs. I jumped out and came as near running as I durst with a big silk handkerchief under my hat for coolness sake and a brace of pistols ready primed for safety. I just threw a mini. Um, I had not gone 100 yards when I reached the stockade. This is how it was. A spring of clear water rose almost at the top of a knoll, well on the knoll, and enclosing the spring, they had classed a stout log house fit to hold two score of people in a pinch and loopholed for musketry on either side. All around this, they had cleared a wide space, and then the thing that was completed by a paling six feet high, without door opening, too strong to pull down without time and labor, and too open to shelter the besiegers. People in the log house had them in every way. They stood quiet in the shelter and, short the, and shot the others like uh, partridges. All they wanted was a good watch um, and food for short of a complete surprise. They might have held the place against a regiment. What particularly took my fancy was the spring. For though we had a good enough in German place of it in the cabin of the Hispaniola with plenty of arms and ammunition and things to eat and excellent wines, there had been one thing overlooked. We had no water. I was thinking in uh, this over when there, uh, when there came ringing over the island of the cry of a man at the point of death. I was not new to violent death. I had served His Royal Highness the Duke of Cumberland and got a wound myself at Font Fontenoy, but I know my pulse went dot and carried one. Jim Hawkins is gone, was my first thought. 
It is something to have been an old soldier, but more still to have been a doctor. There was no time to dilly or dally in our work, and so now I made up my mind instantly and with no time lost returned to shore and jumped on board the jolly boat. By good fortune, Hunter had pulled a good oar. We made the water fly, and the boat was soon alongside, and I boarded the schooner. I found them all shaken, as was natural. The squire was sitting down, as white as a sheet, thinking of the harm he had led us to, the good soul. And one of the six forecastle hands was a little better. There's a man, said Captain Smollett, nodding towards him. New to this work, he came, um, nigh hand fainting, doctor, when he heard the cry. Another touch of the rudder, and this man would join us. I told my plan to the captain between us we settled on the details of its accomplishment. We put old Red Ruth in the gal in the gallery between the captain and the forecastle, or the cabin and the forecastle, with the three or four loaded muskets and a mattress for protection. Hunter brought the boat round under the stern port, and Joyce and I set to work loading her with powder tins, muskets, bags of biscuits, kegs of pork, cask of cognac, and my invaluable medicine chest. In the meantime, the squire and the captain stayed on deck, and the latter hailed the coxswain, who was the principal man aboard. Mr. Hands, he said, here are two of us with a brace of pistols each. If any one of you sick makes a sign, a signal of any description, that man's dead. It was good. They were a good deal taken aback. After a little consultation, uh, one all tumbled down the fore companion, thinking no doubt they could take us on the rear. But when they saw Redruth waiting for them in the spared galley, they went about the ship at once, and a head popped out again on deck. Down, Doug, cries the captain. The head popped back again. We heard no more for this time of these very, uh, we heard no more for the time of these six very faint-hearted seamen. By this time, he must have known, right? I don't know in what in what um century the term seamen became a term for seamen. You know what I mean? Like, but you know, you know, it's kind of like when you write a book and you instead of calling it a rooster, you call it a cock. Like, you had to have known. There's no way you couldn't have known, right? Right? Am I crazy? You, you must have known. If you're writing a book, you gotta be pretty familiar with fucking words and culture and shit like that. And I'd be willing to bet that even back then, they probably called it semen. So, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Very faint-hearted semen. I'm gonna take a little bit more whiskey. Mmm. <sighs> very, very tasty. By this time, tumbling things in as they came, we had the jolly boat loaded as much as we dared. Joyce and I got out through the stern port, and we made for shore again as fast as our oars would take us. The second trip fairly aroused the watchers along the shore. Lily Bolero was dropped again, and just before we lost sight of them behind the little point, one of them whipped ashore and disappeared. I have a mind to change my plan to destroy their boats, but I feared that Silver and the others might be close at hand, and all might be very, very well lost by trying for too much. We soon touched land in the same place as before and set to provisions the blockhouse. All three made the first journey heavily laden and tossed our stores over the palisade. Then, leaving Joyce to guard them, one man to be sure, but with half a dozen muskets, Hunter and I returned to the jolly boat and loaded once our once uh, loaded ourselves once more. So we proceeded without pausing to take breath until the whole cargo was bestowed, where the two servants took up their positions at the blockhouse, and I, with all my power, scuttled back to the Hispaniola. So they're taking all the shit off the boat and putting it in the house where they could readily defend it against the pirates. Interesting. Okay. That we should have risked a second boat load seemed more daring than it really was. They had the advantage of numbers, of course, but we had the advantage of arms. Now one of the men ashore had a musket, and before they could get within range for pistol shooting, we had flattened ourselves, um, flattered ourselves, we should be able to give a good account of a half a dozen at least. 
The squire was waiting for me at the stern window. All of his faintness gone from him. He caught the painter as and made it fast. And we fell to loading the boat for our very lives. Pork, powder, biscuit was the cargo with only a musket and a cutlass apiece for the squire and me and Redruth and the captain. The rest of the arms and powder we dropped overboard in two fathoms and a half of water so that we could see the bright steel shining far below us in the sun and on the clean, sandy bottom. By this time, the tide was beginning to ebb and the ship was swinging round to her anchor. Voices were heard faintly hallowing um, in the direction of the two gigs. And though this reassured us for Joyce and Hunter, who were well to the eastward, it warned uh, party to be off. Redruth retreated from his place in the gallery. Um, it should be galley, shouldn't it? Gallery, I don't know. And dropped in the boat, which we then brought round to the ship's counter to be the handler for Captain Smollett. Now, men, he says, do you hear me? There was no answer from the forecastle. It is you, Abraham Gray. It is you I am speaking. Still no reply. Gray, resumed Mr. Smollett louder. I am leaving the ship, and I order you to follow your captain. I know you are a good man at bottom, and I dare say not one of the lot of yous as bad as he makes out. I have my watch here in my hand. I give you 30 seconds to join me. Join me in. There was a pause. Come, find my fine fellow, continued the captain. Don't hang so long in stays. I'm risking my life and the lives of these good gentlemen every second. There was a sudden scuffle, sound of blows, and outburst Abraham Gray with a knife cut on the side of his cheek and came running to the captain like a dog to the whistle. I'm with you, sir, he said. And the next moment he and the captain had dropped aboard us, and we had shoved away and shoved off and given away. We cleared out the ship, but not yet ashore, and our stockade. Mmm. <laughs> Chapter, uh, seventeen. Sure. Narrative continued by the Doctor. The Jolly Boat's last trip. This fifth trip was quite different from any of the others. In the first place, the little galley pot. What? Hold on. Galley pot it says of a boat. A little galley pot of a boat. Galley pot. Uh, galley pot. Um. A small pot made from glazed earthenware or metal used by pharmacists to hold medicine or ointments. Interesting. Can I see a picture of this? Uh, it just looks like a bowl. It's a bowl. It's a little bowl. Little little metal bowl. Anyway. Of a boat that we were in was gravely overloaded. Five grown men and three of them, Trelawney, Redruth, and the captain over six feet high, was already more than she was meant to carry. Add to that the, por the powder of the pork and the bread bags. The gunwale was lipping astern. All right, opening the internet again. Gunwale, that's not a name of a part of the boat I'm familiar with. Gunwale. Um, the upper edge of the side of a boat or a ship. Really? I got, I got, yeah, the top edge of the hull of a boat. Originally, the structure was the gunwale on a sailing warship, a horizontal reinforcing band added at and above the level of a gun deck to offset the stresses be created by firing artillery. Oh, interesting. So yeah, the, the edge of the boat is like lipping underneath the surface of the water, which means it is fucking super overloaded. Several times we shipped a little water and my breeches and tails of my coat were all soaking wet before we had gone 100 yards. Captain made us trim the boat and we got her to lie a little more evenly. All the same, we were afraid to breathe. In the second place, the ebb that uh, was now making a strong rippling current running westward through the basin and there southward and seaward down by the straits of which we had entered in the morning. Even the ripples were a danger to our overloaded craft, but the worst of it was that we were swept, uh, we were swept out of our true course and away from a proper landing place beyond behind the point. If we let the current have its way, we should come ashore beside the gigs where the pirates might appear at any moment. I cannot keep ahead of the stockade, sir. 
said I to the captain. I was steering while he and Redruth, two fresh men, were at the oars. Tide keeps washing her down. Could you pull a little stronger? No, without swamping... No, without swamping the boat, he said. You must bear up, sir, if you please. Bear up until you see, uh, until you see you're gaining. I tried and found my experiment, uh, that the tide kept sweeping us westward until I laid her head due east, or just, uh, right angles, uh, the way we ought to go. We'll never get ashore at this rate, said I. If it's only, if it's the only course that we can lie, sir, we must even lie it, returned the captain. We must keep upstream. You see, sir, he went on, if we once... Uh, if once we dropped to leeward of the landing place, it's hard to say where we should get ashore, beside the chance of being boarded by the gigs, whereas the way we go, the current must slacken, and then we can dodge back along the shore. Current's less already, sir, said the man Gray, who was sitting in the foresheets. You can ease her off a bit. Thank you, my, er, thank you, my man, said I, quite as if nothing had happened, for we had all quietly made up our minds to treat him like one of ourselves. Suddenly, the captain spoke again, and I thought his voice was a little changed. Again, he said, I have thought... I have thought of that, I said, for I made sure he was thinking of bombardment for the fort. They could never get a gun ashore, and if they did, they could never haul it, German, through the woods. Look astern, doctor, replied the captain. We had entirely forgotten the long nine, and there to our horror were the five rogues busy about her getting off her jacket, and they called the stout uh, tarpaulin cover under which she sailed. Not only that, but it flashed into my mind at the same moment that the round shot and the powder for the gun had been left behind, and a stroke of uh, a stroke with an axe would put it all into the possession of the evil ones aboard. It says aboard. Yeah, the board. Yeah. Aboard. Abroad. Abroad. Evil ones abroad. I think it's aboard. Whatever. Israel was fence gonna, said Gray hoarsely. At any risk, we put the head, boat's head directly for a landing place. Uh, by this time, we had gone so far out of the run of the current that we kept steerage way even at our necessary, um, even at our necessarily gentle rate of rowing, I could keep us steady for the goal. But the worst of it was that with the course I now held, we turned our broadside instead of our stern to the Hispaniola and offered a target like a barn door. I could hear as well as see that brandy-faced rascal Israel Hans plumping down a round shot onto the deck. You is the best shot, asked the captain. Mr. Trelawney, out and away, said I. Mr. Trelawney, would you please pick me off one of these men, sir? Hands, if possible, said the captain. Trelawney was as cool as steel. He looked to the priming of his gun. No, cried the captain. Easy with that gun, sir, or you'll swamp the boat. Now all hands stand by to trim her while he aims. Squire raised his gun, the rowing ceased, and we leaned over to the other side to keep balance. All was so nicely contrived that we did not ship a drop. They had the gun by this time, slewed round upon the swivel, and the hands, who was at the muzzle with a rammer, was in consequence the most exposed. However, we had no luck, for just as Trelawney fired, uh, down he stooped, the ball whistled over him, and it was one of the other four who fell. The cry he gave was echoed not only by his companions on board, but by a great number of voices from the shore. Looking in that direction, I saw the other pirates trooping up from among the trees and tumbling into their places in the boats. Here come the gigs, sir, said I. Give way, then, cried the captain. We mustn't mind if we swamp her now. If we can't get ashore, all's up. Only one of the gigs is being manned, sir, I added. The crew of the other most likely going round by the shore to cut us off. They'll have a hot run. They'll have a hot run, sir, returned the captain. Jack ashore, you know. It's not them, I mind. It's the round shot. Carpet ball, carpet bowls. My lady's maid couldn't miss. Tell us, Squire, when you see the match, and we'll hold water. In the meanwhile, we had been making headway at a good pace for a boat so overloaded, but we had shipped but a little water in the process. We were now close in, 30 or 40 strokes, and we should beach her, for the ebb had already disclosed a narrow belt of sand below the clustering trees. The gig was no longer to be feared. The little point had already concealed it from our eyes. The ebb and tide which had cruelly delayed us, was now making reparations and delaying our assailants. The one source of danger was the gun. 
if I durst, said the captain, I'll stop and pick off another man. But it was plain that they meant nothing should delay their shot. They had never so much as looked at their fallen comrade, though he was not dead. And I could see him trying to crawl away. Ready, cried the squire. Hold, cried the captain, um, quickly as an echo. And he and Redruth backed with a great heave and sent her stern bodily underwater. The report fell in at the same instant of time. This was the first that Jim heard, the sound of the squire shot not having reached him. When the ball passed, um, not the one, not one of us precisely knew, but I fancied it must have been over our heads and that the wind of it may have contributed to our disaster. At any rate, the boat sank by the stern quite gently in three feet of water, leaving the captain and myself uh, facing each other on our feet. The other three took complete headers and came up again drenched and bubbling. So far, there was no great harm. No lives were lost, but and we could wade ashore in safety, but there were all our stores at the bottom, and make things worse, only two guns out of five remained in any state of service. Mine I had snatched from my knees and held over my head by a sort of instinct. As for the captain, he carried his over his shoulder like a bandolier and, like a wise man, lock uppermost. The other three had gone down with the boat. To add to our concern, we heard voices already drawing near us in the woods along the shore, and we had not only the danger of being cut off from the stockade in our half-crippled state, but the fear before us whether, if Hunter and Joyce were attacked by half a dozen, that they would have the sense to conduct uh, to stand firm. Hunter was steady that we knew. Joyce was a doubtful case, a pleasant, polite man for a valet, and to brush one's clothes, but not entirely fitted for a man of war. With all this in our minds, we waded ashore as fast as we could, leaving behind us the poor jolly boat and a good half of all of our powder and provisions. Dang! Looks like these guys are on a bread of hot water. Get it? Get it? Because they were in a boat, and then they got, they got shot. And it's uh, kind of tropical, so that water is pretty warm. Chapter uh, 18. Narrative continued by the doctor. The end of the first day's fighting. Oh, that's nice. We made our best speed across the strip of wood that now divided us from the stockade, and every step we took to the voices of the buccaneers rang nearer. I know I haven't been doing the doctor's voice. This whole time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop. Soon we can hear their footfalls as they ran and the cracking of branches as they breasted across the bit of thicket. Ah, oh, it was a thick bit of thicket. Ah, oh, it was a tiny, tiny thick bit of thicket. I began to see why. Uh, I began to see we should have a brush for it in earnest and looked at my priming. Captain, I said, Trelawney is a dead shot. Give him your gun. His own is useless. They exchanged guns and Trelawney, silent and cool as he had been since the beginning of the bustle hung a moment on the heel to see that all was fit for service. At the same time, observing Gary to be unarmed, I handed him my cutlass. It all our hearts good to see him spit in his hands, knit his brow, and make the blade sing through the air. It's plain from every line of his body that our new hand was worth his salt. Forty paces further, we came to the edge of the wood and saw the stockade in front of us. We struck the enclosure about the middle of the south side, and almost at the same time, seven mutineers, Job Anderson, the boatswain, at their head, appeared in full cry out of the southwestern corner. They paused as if taken aback before they recovered. Not only the squire and I, but Hunter and Joyce from the blockhouse had time to fire. Four shots came in, a rather a scattering volley, but they did the business. One of the enemy actually fell, the rest without hesitation turned and plunged into the trees. After reloading, we walked down on the outside of the palisade to see the fallen enemy. He was stone dead, shot through the heart. Shot through the heart, and you're to blame. German. No, I'm sorry, it's too early for the German. You give love, bad name. We began to rejoice at our good success just when, at that moment, a pistol cracked in the bush. A ball whistling close past my ear, and poor Tom Redworth stumbled and fell to his length on the ground. Both the squire and I returned the shot, but as we had nothing to aim at, it was probable we only wasted the powder. Then we reloaded and turned our attention to poor Tom. The captain and Gary were already examining him and saw with half an eye that he that all was over. 
I believe the readiness of our return volley had scattered the mutineers once more, for we were suffered without further molestation to get the poor gameskeeper hoisted over the stockade and carried groaning and bleeding into the lockhouse. Poor old fellow, he had not uttered one word of surprise, complaint, fear, or even acquiescence from the beginning of our troubles till now, when we laid him down in the log house to die. He had lain like a Trojan beside his mattress in the gallery. Um, he had followed every order silently, doggedly, and well. He was the oldest of our party by a score, German, of years. And now, sullen, old, and uh, sullen, old, serviceable servant, he that he was, um, it was he that was to die. The squire dropped down beside him on his knees and kissed his hands, crying like a child. Be I going, doctor? He asked. Tom, my man, I said, you're going home. I wish I had had a lick at them with the gun first, he replied. Tom, said the squire, so you forgive me, won't you? Would that be respectful like from me to you, squire, was the answer. However so, so it be, amen. And after a little while of silence, he said he thought somebody might read a prayer. It's a custom, sir, he added apologetically. Not long after, without another word, he passed away. Everybody drink for what's his dick. I remember his name. I think it was Redruth. Who cares? In the meantime, the captain, whom I observed to be wonderfully swollen about the chest and pockets, had turned out a great many various stores. The British colors, a Bible, a coil of stoutish ropes, pen, ink, the logbook, pounds of tobacco. I had found a longish fir tree lying felled and trimmed in the enclosure. With the help of Hunter, he had set it up at the corner of the loghouse where the trunks crossed and made an angle. Then climbing onto the roof, he had with his own hands bent and run up the colors. This seemed mightily to relieve him. He entered the loghouse and set about counting up the stores as if nothing else existed. But he had an eye on Tom's passage for all that, and as soon as all was over, came forward with another flag and reverently spread it out on the body. Don't you take it on, sir, he said, shaking the squire's hands. All's well with him. No fear for a hand that's been shot down in his duty to captain and owner. It mayn't be good divinity, but it is a fact. Then he pulled me aside. Dr. Livesey, he said, and how many weeks do you and the squire expect to consort? I told him it was a question of not weeks, but of months. And if we were not back by the end of August, Blanley was to send to find us, but neither sooner nor later. You can calculate for yourself, I said. Why, yes, returned the captain, scratching his head. In making a large allowance, sir, for all the gifts of Providence, I should say we were pretty close hauled. How do you mean? I asked. It is a pity, sir, that we lost that second loan. That's what I mean, replied the captain. As for powder and shot, we'll do, but the rations are short, very short. So short, Dr. Livesey, that perhaps as well without that extra month. And he pointed to the dead body under the flag. Just then, with a roar and a whistle, a round shot passed high above the roof of the loghouse and plumped far beyond us in the woods. Yo-ho, said the captain. Blaze away. You've a little enough powder ready, my lads. At the second trial, the aim was better and the ball descended inside the stockade, scattering a cloud of sand, but doing no further damage. Captain, said the squire. The house is, not, is quite invisible from the ship. It must be the flag they're aiming at. Would it not be wiser to take it in? Strike my colors, cried the captain. No, sir, not I. As soon as he had said the words, I think we all agreed with him. For it was not a piece of stout, seamanly good feeling. It was good policy besides showing, showed our enemies that we despised their cannonade. All through the evening, they kept thundering away. Ball after ball threw over or fell short and kicked up sand in the enclosure. But they had to fire so high that the shot fell dead or buried itself in the soft sand. We had no ricochet to fear... And that though one plopped uh, through the roof of the loghouse and out again through the floor, we soon got used to that sort of horseplay and minded it no more than cricket. Wow, seriously? They were so used to the bombardment of a fucking cannon on their house that they're just like, Ha! Losers. Can't fucking hit the broad side of this house. Oh, look, one fell in through the roof. <laughs> no big deal. We're fine. There's one good thing about all this, observed the captain. The wood in front of us is likely clear. The ebb has made a good while. Our stores should be uncovered. Volunteers go and bring in pork. 
Grand Hunter were the first to come forward. Well-armed, they stole out of the stockade, but it proved a useless mission. Mutineers were bolder than we fancied, or they put trust in Israel's gunnery. Four or five of them were busy carrying off our stores and waiting out of them to one of the gigs that lay close by, pulling an oar or so to hold her steady against the current. Silver was in the stern sheets in command, and every man of them was now provided with a musket from some secret magazine of their own. Captain sat down on his log, and here uh, is the beginning of the entry. Alexander Smollett, Master, David Livesey, Ship's Doctor, Abraham Gray, Carpenter's Mate, John Trelawney, Owner, John Hunter, and Richard Joyce, Owner, Servants, Landsman. Being all that is left faithful to the ship's company with stores for 10 days as short residents, came ashore this day and flew British colors on the Longhouse in Treasure Island. Thomas Redruth, Owner, Servant, Landsman, shot by mutineers, James Hawkin, Cabin Boy. At the same time, I was wondering over poor Jim's fate. Um, the a hail on the land side. Someone's hailing us, said Hunter, who's on guard. Doctor, Squire, Captain, hello, Hunter, is that you? Came the cries. Surrounded the door in time to see Jim Hawkins, safe and sound, come climbing over the stockade. Wow, Jim made it. Wow, what a... Hooray! It's not that I don't like Jim. It's, it's that I don't like Jim. Chapter 19. A narrative resumed by Jim Hawkins. The garrison and the stockade. Am I getting, I'm about halfway through the book right about now. About halfway through, in case you're keeping track at home. As soon as Ben Gunn saw the colors, he came to a halt, stopped me by the arm, and sat down. No, he said. There's a friend. There's your friends for sure. Far more likely, it's the Muneers, I answered. That, he cried. Why, in a place like this, where nobody puts in but a gentleman of fortune, so we would fly the Jolly Roger. You don't make no doubt of that. Now, that's your friends. There's been blows, too. I reckon your friends had had the best of it. And here they are ashore in their old stockade. As was made years and years ago by Flint. Ah, he was the man to have the headpiece was Flint. Barring Ram, his match were never seen. He were fired of no one, not only he, only Silver. Silver was that genteel. Well, I said, that may be so and so be it. All the more reason that I should cherry on and join my friends. Nay, mate, returned Ben. Not you, you're a good boy if I mistook. But you're the only boy, all told. Now Ben Gunn is fly. Rum wouldn't bring me there where you're going. Not rum wouldn't till I see your born gentleman and gets... It on his word of honor. You won't forget my words. A precious sight. That's what he'll say. A precious sight. More confidence. And then nips him. They pinch me the third time with the same air of cleverness. Have I scratched myself? What happened? What's going on over here? What's, uh, what's going on? Huh? I don't know. Sorry. I'm just, uh... <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. I'll just drink it away. <sighs> Whew. Anyway. Um, and when Ben Gunn is wanted, you know where to find him, Jim. Just where you found him today. And him, and him that comes is to have a white thing in his hand. And he's to come alone. Oh, and you say this. Ben Gunn says you has reason for his own. Well, I said, I believe I understand. You have something to propose and you wish to see the squire or the doctor. And you're to be found where I found you. Is that all? And when, says you, he added. Why, from about noon observation to about six bells. Good, says I. Now may I go? You won't forget, he inquired anxiously. Precious sight and reasons of his own, you says. Reasons of his own, that's the majesty. As between man and man. Well then, still holding me, I reckon you can go, Jim. And Jim, if you was to see Silver, you wouldn't go for to sell Ben Gunn. Wild horses wouldn't draw it from you? No, says you. And if the cap, the pirates camp ashore, Jim, what would you say but there'd be winners in the morning? Here he was interrupted by a loud report and a cannonball came tearing through the trees and pitched in the sand not a hundred yards from where we two were talking. And the next moment, each of us had taken two heels in a different direction. Everybody's favorite. You ready? You're going to say it with me? One, two, three. German.
For a good hour to come, frequent reports shook the island, and balls kept crashing through the woods. I moved from hiding place to hiding place, always pursued, or so it seemed to me, by these terrifying missiles. But toward the end of the bombardment, though still I durst not venture in the direction of the stockade where the balls fell oftenest, I had begun in a manner to pluck up my heart again, and after a long detour to the east, crept down among the shoreside trees. The sun had just set, the sea breeze was rustling and tumbling into the woods, and a ruffling of gray surface of the anchorage, the tide too, was far out, and the great tracks of sand lay uncovered. The air, after the heat of the day, chilled me through my jacket. The Hispaniola still lay where she was anchored, but sure enough, there was the Jolly Roger, the black flag of piracy, flying from her peak. Even as I looked, there came another red flash and another report that sent the echoes clattering, and one more round shot whistled through the air. It was the last of the cannonade. I lay for some time watching the bustle which succeeded the attack. Men were demolishing something with axes on a beach near the stockade. The poor jolly boat, afterwards I discovered. Anyway, near the mouth of the river, a great fire was glowing among the trees, and between that point and the ship, one of the gigs kept coming and going, the men whom I had seen so gloomy, shouting at oars like children. But there was a sound in their voices which suggested, Rum! At length, I thought I might return to the stockade. I was pretty far down on the low sandy spit that enclosed the anchorage to the east and is joined at half water to Skeleton Island. And now as I rose to my feet, I saw some distance further down the spit rising among the low bushes, an isolated rock, pretty high and peculiarly white in color. It occurred to me that this might be the white rock of which Ben Gunn had spoken and that someday or another a boat might be wanted and I should know where to look for one. Now, it's most likely white in color because it's covered, absolutely festooned in seabird shit. I went diving um, on Whidbey Island once, and there was a long jetty of giant boulders, like, extending out into the water. And each one was just, it might as well have been snow-capped for just the fucking disgusting amount of wild bird shit that just caked every single one of those motherfucking rocks. It was... Quite a sight to see, um, quite frankly. Anyway. Then I skirted among the woods until I regained the rear, or shoreward side, of the stockade and soon warmly welcomed by the faithful party. I had soon told my story and began to look about me. The log house was made of several unsquared trunks of pine, roof, walls, and floor. The latter stood in several places as much a fort or a foot and a half above the surface of the sand. There was a porch at the door, and under this porch a little spring welled up into an artificial basin of a rather odd kind, no other than a great ship's kettle of iron, with the bottom knocked out and sunk to her bearings, as the captain said, among the sand. Little I had been left beside the framework of the house, but in one corner there was a stone slab laid down by way of hearth and an old rusty iron basket to contain the fire. The slopes of knolls and all on all the inside of the stockade had been cleared of timber to build the house, and we could see by the stumps of what a fine lofty grove had been destroyed. Most of the soil had been washed away or buried in a drift after the removal of trees, only where the streamlet ran down from the kettle, a thick bed of moss and some ferns, a little creeping brush, were still green among the sand. Very close around the stockade, too close for defense, they said. The wood still flared high and dense, all of firs on the land side, but towards the sea, a large admixture of live oaks. The cold evening breeze, of which I have spoken, whistled through every chink of the rude building and sprinkled the floor with a continual rain of fine sand. There was sand in our eyes, sand in our teeth, and sand in our suppers, sand dancing in the spring at the bottom of the kettle, for all the world like porridge beginning to boil. Our chimney was a square hole in a roof, but it was a little part of the smoke that found its way out. The rest edited about the house and kept us coughing and piping the eyes. Jesus, the place sounds like a fucking hell on earth. There's sand everywhere, the smoke all up in the bench, and the water's sandy. Did you all know that the infamous... I hate sand... It's rough, it's coarse, it's irritating. It gets everywhere. Line is preceded 
by another inane line of Padme being like, I love the water. And then he, fucking Anakin in that classic, like, you know when you have a conversation with somebody and you can tell like halfway through the conversation when their eyes lit up that they've picked like the next thing they're going to say and they're just waiting for you to stop talking so they can tell you what they're thinking. That's what that says to me. Like Padme's talking about her love of the water and instead of Anakin going like, oh, I like the water too. Or what do you like to do in the water? Or tell me a story about you and water. He goes, I hate sand. He didn't, he doesn't give a fuck that she likes the water. He was just so fixated on his own bullshit that he was waiting for her to shut up so he could talk about how much he dislikes sand. Shit happens all the goddamn time. Anyway. Add to this that Gray, the new man, had his face tied up in a bandage for a cut he had gotten breaking away from the Mutineers and that poor old Tom Redruth, still unburied, lay along the wall, stiff and stark, under the Union Jack. If we had been allowed to set idle, we should have all fallen into in the blues. But Captain, guess that's why I call it the blues. But Captain Small was never the man for that. All hands were called up before him, and he divided us into watches. The Doctor and Gray and I for one, the Squire and Hunter and Joyce upon the other. Tired though we all were, two were set out uh, for firewood. Two more were to set uh, to dig a grave for Redruth. The doctor was named Cooked. I was put sentry at the door, and the captain himself went from one to another, keeping our spirits up and lending a hand wherever it was wanted. From time to time, the doctor came to the door for a little air to rest his eyes, which were almost soaked out of, smoked out of his head. And whenever he did so, he had a word for me. That man... Oh, wait. Who's the doctor? Yeah. That man Smollett, he said once, is a better man than I am. When I say that, it means a deal, Jim. Another time he came and was silent for a while. Then he put his head on one side and looked at me. Is this Ben Gunn a man? He asked. I don't know, sir, says I. I'm not very sure whether he's sane. If there's any doubt about the matter, he is, returned the doctor. Any man who has been here three years biting his nails on a desert island, Jim, can expect to appear as sane as you or me. Doesn't lie in human nature. Was it cheese you said he was a fancy for? Yes, sir, cheese, answered. Well, Jim, he says, just see the good that comes of being dainty in your food. You've seen my snuff box, haven't you? You've never saw me take a snuff. Reason being is that in my snuff box, I carry a piece of Parmesan cheese. Cheese made in Italy. Very nutritious. Well, that's for Ben Gunn. Really? Well, I suppose if I wanted cheese, Parmesan, it's good goddamn cheese. It's a good god. I love Parmesan. Before supper was eaten, we buried old Tom in sand and stood round him for a while, bareheaded in the breeze. Good deal of firewood had been got in, but not enough for the captain's fancy, and he shook his head over it and told us we must get back to this tomorrow rather livelier. Then we went. Uh, then we had eaten our pork, and each had a good stiff glass of brandy grog. The three chiefs got together in a corner to discuss our prospects. It appears they were at their wit's end what to do, the stores being so low that we must have been starved and surrendered long uh, before help came. But our best hope, it was decided, was to kill off the Buccaneers until they either hauled down their flag or ran away with the Hispaniola. From 19, they were already reduced to 15. Two others were wounded, and one at least, the man shot beside the gun, severely wounded, if he were not dead. Every time we had a crack at them, we were to take it, saving our own lives with the extremist care. And beside that, we had two able allies, rum and the climate. As for the first, though we were about half a mile away, we could hear them roaring and singing late into the night. And as for the second, the doctor staked his wig that camped where they were in the marsh unprovided with remedies. Half of them would be on their backs before a week. Uh, who's talking right now? The captain? I think so. No, the doctor. So, got it. If we are not all shot down first, they'll be glad to be packing in the schooner. It's always a ship, and they can get buccaneering again, I suppose. First ship I ever that I ever lost, said Captain Smollett. I was dead tired, as you may fancy, and when I got to sleep, it was not till after a great deal of tossing. I slept like a log of wood. I think it's just a log. Pretty. Hold on a second there, Stevenson. Pretty sure a log is a fucking log. 
You don't need to describe it as a log of wood. We all know what you're talking about. You slept like a log. We know exactly what you're talking about. That is totally fucking common parlance. You don't need to specify the material being wood. It's not a log of metal. Ain't a log of clay. It's a log of wood. It's a log. That's what a log is made of. Idiot. The rest had been up long and had already breakfast and increased the pile of firewood by about half as much again when I was wakened by a bustle and the sound of voices. Flag of truce, I heard someone say, and then immediately after with a cry of surprise, Silver himself! And at that I had jumped up, rubbed my eyes, and ran to a loophole in the wall. Interesting. Silver wants to truce, does he? <laughs> Chapter 20. Silver's Embassy. I've been reading for like an hour. <laughs> Alright. Sure enough. There were just two men outside the stockade. One of them waving a white cloth. The other no less a person than Silver himself. Standing placidly by. It was still quite early. The coldest morning that I think I ever was aboard in. A chill that pierced into the marrow. The sky was bright and cloudless overhead, and the tops of the trees shone rosily. Yeah, in the sun. But where Silver stood in, with his uh, lieutenant, all was still in shadow, and they waded knee-deep in a low white vapor that crawled during the night out of the morass. Alright, I'll look it up, because I'm curious. What is morass? Uh, an area of muddy or boggy ground. Thank you. The chill and the vapor taken together told a poor tale of the island. It was plainly a damp, feverish, unhealthy spot. Keep indoors, men, said the captain. Ten to one, this is a trick. Then he hailed the buccaneer. Who goes? Stand, or we fire. Oh, God. Smarts, paint you all out. All right. Flog a truce, cried Silver. The captain was in the porch, keeping himself carefully out of the way of a treacherous shot, should any be intended. He turned and spoke to us. Doctors, watch on the lookout. Doctor Livesey, take the north side if you please. Jim, the east, gray the west. Watch below, all hands to loaded muskets. Lively, men, and careful. And then he turned again to the mutineers. And what do you want with your flag of truce, he cried. This time it was the other man who replied. Captain Silver, sir, come on board and make times. He shouted. Captain Silver, don't know him. Who's he? Cried the captain. And we could hear him adding to himself. Um... Captain is in my heart, and here is promotion. Long John answered for himself, Me, sir, these poor lads have chosen me captain after your desertion, sir. Laying a particular emphasis upon the word desertion. We're willing to submit to come to terms and no bones about it. All I ask is your word, Captain Smollett. Let me safe and sound this here stockade. One minute to get out of shot before a gun is fired. My man, said Captain Smollett, I have not the slightest desire to talk to you. If you wish to talk to me, you can come, and that's all. If there's any treachery, it'll be on your side, and the Lord help you. That's enough, Captain, shouted Long John Shirley. A word from you is enough. I know gentlemen, you might lie to that. We could see the man who carried the flag of truce attempting to hold Silver back. Nor was that wonderful, um, seeing how the cavalier had, that had been the captain's answer. But Silver laughed at him aloud and slapped him on the back as if the idea of alarm had been absurd. Then he advanced to the stockade, threw over his crutch, got a leg up, and with great vigor and German scale, succeeded in surmounting the fence and dropped his saving on the other side. I will confess that I was far too much taken up with what was going on to be of the slightest use of century. Indeed, I had already deserted my eastern loophole and crept up behind the captain, who was now seated himself on the threshold, with his elbows on his knees, head in his hands, and his eyes fixed on the water as it bubbled out of the old iron kettle in the sand. He was whistling, Come, lasses and lads. 
Silver had terrible hard work getting up the knoll. What with the steepness of the incline, the thick tree stumps, and the soft sand, he and his crutch were as helpless as a ship in stays. But he stuck to it like a man in silence, and at last arrived before the captain, whom he saluted in the handsomest style. Oh, oh, Silver, you flatterer, you. He was tricked out of his best in immense blue coat, thick with brass buttons, and hung as low about his knees in a fine laced hat that was set on the back of his head. You, you are my man, said the captain, raising his head. You had better sit down. You ain't a-going to let me inside, Captain, complained Long John. It's a main cold morning to be sure, sir, set outside upon the sand. Why, Silver, said the Captain, if you had pleased to be an honest man, you might have been sitting in your uh, in your galley. It is you are doing. You're either my ship's cook, and then you were treated handsome, or Captain Silver, a common mutineer and pirate, and then you can go hang. Well, well, Captain, returned the sea cook, sitting down as if as he was bitten on the sand. You'll have to give me a hand up again, that's all. Sweet, pretty place you have here at all. Oh, it's Jim. Top of the morning to you, Jim. Doctor, here's me service. Why, there you all are like a happy family in a manner of speaking. <laughs> if you have anything to say, my man, better say it, said the captain. Right you are, Captain Smollett, replied Silver. Do his duty, to be sure. Well, now, look you here. That's a good lie of yours last night. I don't deny it was a good lie. Some of you pretty handy with the hands and sp uh, hands spike hand. I'll not deny it neither. But what's up? My people were shook. Maybe I was shook. Maybe I was shook myself. Maybe that's why I'm here for terms. But you mark me, Captain. It won't do twice by thunder. We'll have to do sentry go and ease off a point or so on the rum. Maybe you think we were all a sheet in the wind's eye. But I'll tell you I was sober. I was only dog-tired. If I'd woken a second sooner, I'd have caught you at the act, I would. It wasn't dead when I got round to him, not he. Well, said Captain Smollett, cool as can be. Fucking Fonzie up in this shit. All that's ever said was a riddle to him. But you never would have guessed from it his tone. As for me, I'd begun to have an inkling. Ben Gunn's last words came back to my mind. I began to suppose that he had paid the Buccaneers a visit while uh, they had all lay drunk round the fire, and I reckoned up with glee that we had only 14 enemies to deal with. Well, here it is, says Silver. We want the treasure, and we'll have it. That's our point. You would just have soon save your lives, I reckon, and that's yours. You have a chart, haven't you? Let me as... That's as maybe. That's as maybe? That's as maybe. Sure. Sure. Come on, Stevenson. Fucking get your shit together. Write a sentence that makes sense. Nobody fucking talked like that. I, I, I refuse. Replied the captain. Oh, well, you have that. I know. Returned Long John. You need to be so husky with a man. There ain't a particle of service in that, and you may lay to it. What I mean, I want you to chart. Now, I never meant you no harm myself. That won't do with me, my man, interrupted the captain. We know exactly what you meant to do, and we don't care, for now you see you can't do it. The captain looked at him calmly and proceeded to fill a pipe. If Abe Gray... Oh, Silver broke out. Avast there! Uh, nope. If Abe Gray... Silver broke out. Navas there, cried Mr. Smollett. Gray told me nothing, and I asked him nothing. And what's more, I would see you and him and this whole island blown clear out of the water into blazons first. So there is my mind for you, my man, on that. This little whiff of temper seemed to cool Silver down. He had been growing nettled before, but now he pulled himself together. Like enough, he said. I would set no limits to what a gentleman might consider ship shape or might not, as the case were. And seeing as how about how you are about to take a pipe, Captain, I'll make so free as to do likewise. And he filled a pipe and lighted it, and the two men sat silently smoking for quite a while, now looking each other in the face, now stopping their tobacco, now leaning forward to spit. It was as good as the play to see them. Now, resumed Silver, here it is. You give us the chart to get the treasure, boy, and we drop shooting poor seamen and stoving their heads in wall asleep. You do that, and we'll offer you a choice. Either you come aboard along with us once the treasure's shipped, 
and I'll give you my affi- I'll give you my Affy Davy. Affy Davy. Nope. Hold on. Laffy Davy? Affy Davy. Oh. Affy Dot. Uh, an illegally binding statement or oath. Uh, rather than to testify open court, each sailor posted a Davy before sailing. A Davy lamp, often more capitalized as a Davy lamp, a type of safety lamp. Affidavit? I can't. It's a fucking French word, isn't it? A F F I D A V I T. I know I've seen it before, but fucking, I'm gonna say affidavit. I'll give you my affidavit. Put me word of honor to clap you somewhere safe for sure. If that ain't you fancy, some of my hands being rough and having old scores on account of hazing, and you can stay here. You can. We'll divide stores with you, man for man. I'll give you my affidavit as before to speak the first ship I sight. Send him here to pick you up. Now you alone that talking. Handsome how you couldn't look to get now, uh, couldn't get now, you. And I hope, raising his voice, that all hands in this here blockhouse will overhaul my words, for what is spoke to one is spoke to all. Captain Smollett rose from his seat and knocked out the ashes of his pipe in the palm of his left hand. Is that all? He asked. Every last word, by thunder, answered John. Refuse that, and you've seen the last of me, me but musket balls. Very good, said the captain. Now you'll hear me. If you come up, one by one, unarmed, I'll engage to clap you all in irons and take you home to a fair trial in England. If you won't, my name is Alexander Smollett. I've flown my sovereign colors, and I'll see you all to Davy Jones. You can't find the treasure. You can't sail the ship. There's not a man among you fit to sail the ship. You can't fight us, Gray. There, got away from five of you. Your ship's iron. Your ship's in irons, Master Silver. You're on a lee shore, and you'll and so you'll find. I stand here and tell you so. They're the last good words you'll get from me, and... For in the name of heaven, I'll put a bullet in your back when next I meet you. Tramp, my lad. Bundle out of this, please, hand over hand, and double quick. Silver's face was a picture. His eyes startled, started, and his head with a, was wraith. With wraith. Uh, he shook fire out of his pipe. Give me your hand up, he cried. No, uh, no, I, returned the captain. Oh, give me a hand up, he roared. Not a magnamongrous moved. Growling the foulest imprecations, he crawled along the sand till he got hold of the porch and hoisted himself again upon his crutch. Then he spat into the spring. Yeah, he cried. That's all I think of you. Before an hour's out, I'll stove in your old blockhouse like a rum punching. Laugh by thunder, laugh. For an hour out, you'll laugh upon the other side. Then that'll die to be the lucky ones. With a dreadful oath, he stumbled off, plowed down the sand, and was helped across the stockade after four or five failures by the man with the flag of truce and disappeared into an instant afterwards among the trees. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up cast. I hope you enjoyed more adventures of Jim and his buddy, um, the Doctor and Sir Livesey Parkington and Tim Curry. And uh, we'll check in with those crazy knuckleheads next week and see what kind of rapscallion adventures they have to. Probably more murder! Have a good one, everyone.